1: hello you spectacular people welcome to this 288th episode of the history ghost bump podcast ghost tours for the theater of the mind i am your host diane on this episode we're heading to birmingham alabama to a location that was suggested by jonathan geisel and this is the tutwiler hotel this location was a little harder to research because the tutwiler hotel has had two locations Before we get into that, I just want to address really quickly, I've gotten emails from people and messages wondering, where did history goes bump go? We were looking for you on iTunes and all of a sudden it was gone. I got an email from Apple Podcasts on Christmas Eve, letting me know that my podcast had been rejected and was taken down from their directory. No explanation, no reason why. I had a pretty good idea why, because I'd heard through the grapevine from other podcasters that they were cracking down on something that some of us were doing to get a little bit more searchability, and this was adding keywords into our author line. So I went in and corrected that, and I am back up on iTunes. They never did tell me what I did wrong that had them pull me down, but always know that you could find History Goes Bump everywhere else if you can't find it on Apple Podcasts. I'm even on Pandora now. I also want to let all the listeners know that we're going to be changing the production schedule. Right now, I'm doing two episodes every single week. I'm doing one for the executive producers and then one for the free feed. And it has just become too much for me to do. I just can't do all that and work my full-time job and have a family life. So something had to give. So what's giving is the free feed. So the production is now going to go from being a weekly podcast to bi-weekly, at least for right now. Hopefully in the future, we can go back to a weekly production. I just don't frankly have the time to put the energy that I need to to put out a quality podcast to you guys. I just feel like I'm rushing it and having to squeeze it in and just don't have enough time for it. And now let's welcome some people into the Spooktacular crew. Welcome Amy, Emily, Anthony, Lindsay with an EY. Natasha, who spells her name N A T O S H A, very cool. Elizabeth, Veronica, Anna Marie, Sharon, Aria, Anna, and Grant. Welcome, everybody. And now, this moment Noddity. <music> the moment Noddity was suggested by John Michaels. Have you ever felt like you're out of control of your body, or at least a part of your body? I'm sure many of you have found yourself suffering a nervous twitch in a muscle or eyelid or some other weirdness. Now imagine that it is a limb that you have no control over, you know, a leg or an arm. There are people who experience their limbs acting seemingly on their own, and they feel helpless to stop it. This condition is referred to as Dr. Strangelove Syndrome or Alien Hand Syndrome, AHS. The part of the body most often affected is the left hand, and most commonly, a person having an issue with AHS, will find their hand reaching out and grabbing objects without them actually wanting to manipulate that object. It just happens on its own. And the sufferer usually has to use the hand they have control of to stop the other hand from doing what it's doing. This would seem quite comical, like something from the vaudevillian stage, if it weren't a real condition. Most cases of AHS occur in people whom have had the two hemispheres of their brain surgically separated. Sometimes the affliction results after a stroke, infection, aneurysm, migraine, or brain surgery. Alien hand syndrome? Certainly is odd. Grab your slippers, hot
0: chocolate, flashlight, and maybe even that baseball bat.
1: And now, This Month in History. In the month of January on the 12th in 1879, the Zulu War began. This was a war between the British Empire and the people of Zululand in South Africa. The British troops were led by Lord Chelmsford and the Zulu were led by the man who became their king in 1872, Setsueo. The Zulu were unwilling to submit to British rule and Setsueo formed an army of 60,000 men. The British also wanted the Zulu to provide labor in the diamond fields of southern Africa. The British led two invasions during the war that lasted for nearly six months. The Zulu had early success, but the second invasion ended with a decisive defeat of them. Nearly 7,000 Zulu were killed during the war. Setsueyo was the last king of an independent Zulu kingdom, and infighting would split those left after the war. Setsueyo died a few years later. Alabama. It's a state down in the south, and I don't know what it is about the south, but it just oozes hauntings. Doesn't it seem that way? When I think of the Northwest, I think of cryptids, Bigfoot, that kind of thing. It's the South that always makes me think of haunted stuff. That and castles over in the United Kingdom. Both of those places just scream to me haunted. I don't know why it is. It's not that these areas necessarily have more history than anywhere else. It just seems like there's an energy there. This location that we're going to be discussing, the Tutwiler Hotel, is in Birmingham, which has a rich history all of its own. But when it comes to ghosts, they've got a lot going on here as well. We covered the Sloss Furnaces in episode 142, which is quite a haunted location. But there's some other places here that are haunted as well. I know many of the listeners are into country music, especially old country music, so you're probably fans of Hank Williams he died in Birmingham. What happened is at the age of 29, he was traveling from Montgomery to West Virginia. And it just so happens that this was on New Year's Day in 1953. Hank was known as a guy who liked his liquor and his drugs. Unfortunately, he mixed some alcohol and pain medication and had a heart attack. He was spending the night in a hotel called the Redmont Hotel in Birmingham. And it would seem that because he died at the Redmont Hotel, his has decided to stay there. Guests have reported hearing a guitar strumming portions of Williams' songs and a voice uttering his nickname, Old Hank. But it's not just the hotels here in Birmingham that have hauntings going on. The libraries are haunted. It's the craziest thing. The Lynn Henley Research Library is downtown and has an elevator because it's got so many floors. And there are people who claim that while they're riding that elevator, they catch a whiff of Chesterfield cigarettes. And they think this is because the spirit of Fant Thornley, who was the director of the Birmingham Public Library from 1953 until 1970, is haunting this location. He seems to have a particular fondness not only for the elevator, but also for the third floor. He loved this building. It was the main library branch during his tenure, and he oversaw the construction of multiple new branches and integrated the city's library system in 1963. Not only is it his cigarette smoke that people smell, but there's something that happens with pencils. He likes to roll them. Now, obviously, I'm skeptical, so if a pencil rolls, I'm going to wonder if the table maybe isn't level or the floor not level. But there's a tour guide there who said that he's personally experienced it with short pencils that are available in the reading room on the first floor. He said, you write and put your pencil down on the desk, and it rolls across the desk and stops, then rolls back toward you and stops. Some people have watched their pencil turn around in circles. And one reported the pencil stood up on end like it was trying to write something. Then we're getting into some territory where it's not about the levelness of the property or the table. Something seems to be screwing around with the pencil. Which makes me wonder, is it easier for a spirit to manipulate a pencil? And that's why it's doing that rather than picking up books and throwing them around. Or maybe he doesn't want to damage the book since he loved the library. The other library that's haunted in this city is the Homewood Library. Most of the haunting activity happens after hours. Doors open and close on their own. They've been found unlocked after they've been locked and checked. Books and DVDs fly off shelves, and that's actually been caught on security cameras. In 2014, Birmingham had what they called the snowpocalypse, and a librarian was stuck there overnight and was awakened by the sound of a woman laughing hysterically. That'd be a bit terrifying. You're already stuck having to stay the night at the library because of a huge snowstorm, and then you hear a woman laughing hysterically. Once a crew of construction workers working on the library sprinkler system after hours were so frightened by the sight of floating equipment that they fled and called the police. That must have been a real deal because I would think most construction workers, the big burly guys, are not going to want to admit to the police, uh, something scared me. There's a paranormal investigation team that goes by the name Scare, and one of the co-founders, Shane Busby, has investigated the Homewood Library multiple times. He said, one of the things we like to do is a mock sermon. We play some Church of Christ music and stop to see if there's any kind of response. We did get an audible voice saying amen once, and possibly the reason for this is that the library had been a church at one time. And then both Scare and an unaffiliated medium have asked on separate occasions how many spirits reside in the library. The answer on both occasions was the same, nine. That's a lot of spirits in one place. The Hampton Inn and Suites in Birmingham is an upscale hotel with a long history. This is the former Tutwiler Hotel and the former Ridgely Apartments. This was not the original Tutwiler Hotel. That one was built in 1914 on a different spot and eventually demolished in 1974. The Tutwiler was built in a grandiose style to attract the steel industry to come to town for conventions. This worked. and Birmingham soon became a convention destination. The city felt the loss of the hotel when it was demolished and so it was decided to renovate the historic luxury Ridgely Apartments and reopen it as the new Tutwiler Hotel. And it is this location where the namesake for the hotel is reputedly still hanging around in the afterlife. And there might be a few other spooks as well. Join me as we explore the history and hauntings of the Tutwiler Hotel. As I mentioned earlier, in episode 142, we featured the Sloss Furnaces, which are located in Birmingham. In that episode, we talked about the city of Birmingham and how it became a center for industry after the Civil War, based on the fact that iron ore, limestone, and coal were abundant here. As a symbol of that industry, the city made a 55-foot cast-iron statue that was displayed at the St. Louis World's Fair in 1904. They named it Vulcan, and today it can be found in its own park and has recently been refurbished. Vulcan is the second tallest metal statue in America after the Statue of Liberty and it really does stand very tall and I believe it's called Vulcan because it is a representation of the god Vulcan. He seems like he's holding an arrow and checking it to make sure it's straight as if he had just made it on an anvil and there's an anvil that's sitting next to him and I can't remember but he might be holding a hammer in his hand too. And it looks like it has a door that you can go in underneath it. And I don't know if there's displays in there, or if you can go up the stairs or something to get a view of the city or something. But it looks like a very cool thing to visit. And being that it's the second tallest metal statue in America, it's one of those things you have to go see. Birmingham was founded in 1871 by the Ellerton Land Company. This was a bunch of shareholders and some Southern entrepreneurs that all contributed in founding Birmingham. It would only make sense that an entrepreneur would want to build a hotel to convince the American Iron and Steel Institute to have its annual convention in Birmingham. That entrepreneur was Robert Jemison Jr. Robert Jemison Jr. was said to be the greatest real estate developer of Birmingham's 20th century, and a local paper called him Mr. Birmingham. And just a brief list of the places he built backs up this claim. These locations include Mountain Brook Club, Mountain Brook Village, Empire Building, Stallings Building, The Old Mill, Elmwood Cemetery, Redmont Gardens Apartments, Mountain Brook Grammar School, Mountain Brook Writing Academy, the Newberry Building, the Ridgely Apartments, and the original Tutwiler Hotel. Jemison was born in Georgia in 1802. In 1826, his family moved to Alabama and he joined them. He turned his eyes to politics and served in the Alabama State Legislature from 1840 to 1863. He was a Confederate state senator from 1863 to 1865. Jemison made most of his money from his plantations, and he owned over 100 slaves across six plantations. Obviously, the Civil War hit his interests hard, and he lost his mansion and many other businesses. That didn't stop him from continuing to want to build things, and in 1913, he came up with a plan for the Tutwiler Hotel. There was a lack of quote-unquote adequate modern hotels in the city of Birmingham at that time, but obviously Jemison was in need of major capital. He just lost everything with the war, basically. He approached George Crawford, who was the president of the Tennessee Coal, Iron, and Railroad Company, and asked him to become the president of a hotel company. Crawford said he would, as long as Jemison would oversee the finances and construction of this new hotel he was talking about. Once that was set, the two men knew they needed to find someone with money. They went to see the head of the Tutwiler Coal and Coke Company, Edward Tutwiler, and he's either called Major or Colonel, depending upon what you're looking at on the internet, I couldn't find anything definitive. He did serve in the Confederate Army during the Civil War, and he was a very young man. So I'm not sure which one of those titles is his. He had once been a superintendent of several of the Sloss Furnace's mines also, so he was very familiar with the whole coal mining and making of iron and steel and things like that. They were hoping he would invest in the hotel, and he agreed to the tune of $1,850,000. You can imagine back in the early 1900s, was a lot of money. Tutwiler asked the hotel be named for his family. Another investor was W.P. Harding, but apparently he didn't put in enough capital so that his name would be added as well. So Tutwiler must have put in most of the money since they said, yeah, we'll name it after your family. A lot was found on the southeast corner of 20th Street and Fifth Avenue North, and the contracting firm Wells Brothers and Company of New York City began construction in 1913. The design was created by two architects, W.L. Stoddard and W. Welton, and was unique in that there were no rooms that were completely in the interior. All bedrooms were on the outer side of the building, so that ample sunlight would stream inside. There was a large, beautiful lobby with balconies overlooking it from two mezzanine levels. There were two entrances to the lobby. One was a marble public corridor that was at the center of the 20th Street facade, and the other was a ladies' entrance on the 5th Avenue side. Originally, there were 343 rooms and eight large rooms that opened to make the Grand Ballroom, which could accommodate 1,200 people. The United Hotels Company became the lessee of the hotel, and they brought in trained employees and furnished the hotel when it was completed in 1914. And apparently, it really was something. It really put Birmingham on the map, they said. It was so grandiose. More than 8,000 people dressed in their formal wear turned out for the Grand Opening. The Tutwiler would become famous for hosting big events like a press conference for Charles Lindbergh and actress Tallulah Bankhead's post-wedding bash. And other celebrities and politicians came and visited over the next 60 years. Before long, it was known as an outstanding hotel of the South. Birmingham became a convention city thanks to the hotel, and the Tutwiler did indeed host the American Iron and Steel Institute's convention. So I guess he put his mind to it and he got it. The hotel even managed to weather Birmingham's decision to become a dry city in 1915 and turn the hotel's drinking bar into a milk bar. Now you guys know I have one of those inquiring minds and I just have to know certain things. So when I hear that a bar has been turned into a milk bar, I'm like, what exactly was that? I mean, did they just go up to the bartender and say, hey, barkeep, pour me a glass of milk? I didn't know. I wasn't sure what exactly is a milk bar. It just seems really weird to go up to a bar and just ask for milk. So I decided to Google milk bar and I threw in Tutwiler so I could definitely get a feel for what might have been going on at that particular location. And that's not what came up for me. My results educated me on the fact that there's a Tutwiler prison in Alabama and that female inmates have a lactation room designated for them there. (laughs) I just had to share that with everybody. Here I go down my little rabbit hole and I ended up in a lactation room. It was lots of fun. Now back to the hotel. The beauty of the hotel eventually faded, as most of them do, and by the 1960s it was becoming rundown. Facelift was attempted, but the hotel just paled in comparison to the other buildings in the downtown area around it. In 1974, the Tutwiler was imploded to make room for the first Alabama Bank building. For the next 12 years, the Tutwiler Hotel was absent from the city. In 1985, the city of Birmingham was awarded the Urban Development Act grant that gave them $895,000. So they decided to take this money, they combined it with $12 million in private funding, and they started this process of reopening a Tutwiler hotel. And this was spearheaded by Temple Tutwiler III, who was Edward Tutwiler's great-grandson. And he made this go forward with a plan to renovate the Ridgely apartments and convert them into the new Tutwiler hotel. As stated earlier, Robert Jemison had also built this building. The Ridgely Apartments were originally a nine-story luxury apartment building at 2021 Park Place near Lynn Park. The project was developed in 1913 by Jemison and Tutwiler, so they were doing a lot of stuff back in the early 1900s. The building is made from brick with limestone and terracotta details and was designed by Tennessee-born J.E.R. Carpenter. The new Tutwiler opened for business in 1986. The hotel underwent another even more extensive renovation and was completed in 2007 at a cost of $9.2 million. There are 149 rooms with 53 suites, a fitness center, signature restaurant, and a business center. This renovation was undertaken by hotel developer Bill Murray of Integral Hospitality Solutions. InterWest Capital now owns the hotel and is managed by New Orleans-based HRI Lodging, and known as the Hampton Inn & Suites Birmingham downtown Tutwiler. So obviously this Tutwiler is not as grandiose as the original with this fabulous lobby and the mezzanines looking down on it and a big grand ballroom. But I have heard it's still a really nice place and the restaurant just gets rave reviews for its food. And that's where the story would end for the Tutwiler, except for those nagging claims of a ghost in the hotel. It would seem that Edward Tutwiler was not willing to let go of the buildings that were a part of his history. The Ridgely Apartments may not have been the original Tutwiler, but they had a connection to him other than him just funding the building of them. Tutwiler lived in the luxury apartments for a time, and it would seem he's decided to stay. Perhaps he feels even more at home since the building took on the name of the Tutwiler Hotel. Guests and staff have all told stories of experiences with a spirit that most believe belongs to Tutwiler. In 1995, a bartender claimed to have had many experiences. He'd gotten in trouble with management after they claimed that he'd left the lights on in the bar for over a week. He was stunned when they called him in for a lecture about proper lockup procedures. He said that he always turned the lights off when he left. That evening, he flicked off the lights, but returned a little later to make sure they were off. He found them on. He turned them off again and returned later to find them on yet again. This happened four times that evening. And then it happened for five nights in a row. Then the weirdest thing happened. When he returned to check the lights on the sixth night, he found a multi-course meal with wine and candles waiting for him. Now that takes a lot more doing than just flipping on and off lights. This ghost was cooking in the kitchen. Now there's going to be some people who are going to say, "How can this be Tutwiler? Why would he be doing?" Hanging out in the kitchen to begin with and cooking and doing that kind of thing, because that wouldn't have been, it wasn't like he was the cook at the hotel. So, what is he doing? And why is he so fascinated with the kitchen in particular? Is this where his apartment had been? Nobody's sure, but they do know that something worked when they tried it out with the spirit. The staff decided to go through a little ritual that they hoped would appease the spirit. The staff would address the ghost of Tutwiler every night at closing with the words, good night major i guess they assume that he was a major not a colonel good night major please turn the lights and stove off and don't make a mess no one has found a multi-course meal waiting for them again and the lights generally remain off throughout the evening but tutwiler may not be the only spirit here guests report hearing knocking on their doors in the middle of the night usually on the sixth floor these knocks are usually loud and rapid and when guests go to the door they find no one there This ghost has been nicknamed the knocker and is believed to be a male spirit because only women staying in a room alone have had these knocking experiences. But I've read other accounts that claim a young girl is responsible. Kim Johnston, founder of Scare, Spirit Communications and Research of Alabama, who's investigated the Tutwiler said, I can confirm there is a little girl spirit who haunts several floors there. We caught audio of a little girl saying knock knock in a sweet little voice. During World War I, a family lived on the sixth floor, a father, mother, and little girl. The father was a soldier and killed in battle. Shortly after, the mother died of tuberculosis. That left the little girl an orphan. It's possible the child ended up in a nearby orphanage, which burned down soon after, and there's the theory that she died in that fire and then returned to her former home. Edward Wolfgang Poe, who runs the Birmingham Historic Touring Company, said staff have seen on security cameras a little girl in a long dress and pigtails skipping up and down the halls on the sixth floor. They see people walk by without acknowledging her. Some have seen her turn and walk into a room without opening a door. So is the spirit of Edward Tutwiler here? Are there other spirits poking around this historic building? Is the Tutwiler Hotel haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, Birmingham is not that far from me, so you know one of these days I'm going to be making it over there and hanging out in that great historic city. I want to encourage you guys to check out the website at historygoesbump.com. and if you want to send me some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. We currently have our design contest for 2019 going on. When we've done this contest in the past, we've always asked that three elements be included in it. history, ghost bump, the words, a ghost... And then some other element. It's We've had palm trees, castles, lighthouses. This year I wanted to do something completely different. You guys have all heard Mort at the end of the show, sharing his eulogies and welcoming people into the cemetery. Occasionally he adds some of his commentary into the rest of the show. So we have an audio representation of Mort, but we don't have a visual one. And I thought it'd be really cool to have somebody design Mort for the 2019 design. So that's what this contest is. What I want you to do is a design featuring Mort and the words, I dig graves. Entries need to be submitted by midnight Eastern time on January 31st of 2019 in PNG or JPG format sized 1500 by 1500 or as close as possible as you can get to that so that it will shrink down rather well to put it on different mugs and clothes and that kind of thing. You can add whatever else you like. It just has to have Mort in the words, I dig graves. The contest winner will receive a mug with their design on it and bragging rights that they brought Mort to life. Send entries to historygoesbump at gmail.com. I got some emails that I want to share with everybody. I got an email from Margaret. She says, I've been meaning to write you for over a year now, combining my two lifelong loves, The Supernatural and History. Your podcast is by far my favorite, though Jim Harold's podcast ranks right up there. Well." I feel very honored to be mentioned in the same line as Jim Harold, for sure. My interest with the paranormal probably comes from my family. The of Five, my older siblings love telling me spooky stories and watching spooky movies with me. My mother also had her share of true stories to tell. Before I was born, my family lived in an old defunct funeral home in Marietta, Pennsylvania. Many of their stories revolved around their experiences while living there. Sadly, I never had an overt experience with a ghost, but oh how I wanted one that could not be explained away. That is until recently. One of my dearest friends had a beautiful long-haired cat named Foxy. She did look like a fox, who I adored. I'm more of a dog person, but this cat was so cool and dog-like in her demeanor and was the cutest, sweetest animal ever that I just fell in love with her. I played with her when visiting and made sure she had breakfast when my friend slept in. I was very protective of this cat, especially when I and others went out onto the balcony. My friend's apartment, situated on the ninth floor, did not make this a safe place for Foxy. A few months ago, I learned Foxy did get out on the balcony and tragically... Fell off. My friend was heartbroken, as was I. A week or two after this tragedy, I was asleep in bed and awakened to the sound of something scratching on the dust ruffle of my bed. It's a Queen Anne bed and so sits higher off the floor than traditional ones. At first, I heard it on the side of my bed where I was facing. It terrified me. All kinds of thoughts went through my head. Demons? Someone's animal somehow got into my house? Did I accidentally ingest acid? <laughs> I love that. It stopped for about a second and then went around to the other side of my bed where my back was facing. Again, I heard scratching and then a soft thud landing next to me. Instead of panicking, I became calm all of a sudden. Whatever jumped onto my bed was little and snuggled into the small of my back. It felt comforting and I knew, I just knew, it was Foxy coming for one more snuggle before she said goodbye. Just so you know, Diane, as much as I love the supernatural, I'm a pragmatic and educated woman. A lawyer who later decided to teach, achieved a master's degree in special education and currently teaches high school. Not one who engages in flights of fancy. I also know I was not asleep when this happened. Was it the ghost of Foxy coming back to say goodbye? Or did Margaret's imagination kick into overdrive? That, Diane, is for you to decide. Well, I have to say, I think that kitty cat came to say hi to you. I have no doubt that you had that experience. And then she went on to suggest a location that I have added to my list. It sounds like a really cool place in Virginia. Jessica wrote to thank me for the card and the decals that I sent out to the executive producers. And she said the creepy Christmas episode was certainly creepy and came at the perfect time, which as I listen to more episodes, that seems to be a pattern. Yeah, it's called synchronicity. And I don't know why it happens around here all the time, but it does. Yesterday, my fiance and I were watching my niece, almost nine and two nephews, four and five. They'd spent the night. We were upstairs getting ready for the day while they were playing together downstairs on the main level when they all came running up the stairs to the second story to tell me that the Christmas tree moved and that one of my many Elvis Presley ornaments was playing a song, which they do when you push the button on the back. They said they didn't touch it and seemed a little spooked by it. A little backstory. I'm a huge Elvis fan because of my grandma's collection. I have to say I'm a huge Elvis fan too, so great. I grew up listening to all his records she had and watching his movies. My grandma passed away in 2012, and she only got to know my niece until age two. I'm the oldest grandchild, and I know I'm guilty of being her favorite of the four grandkids, lol. I was grandma's girl and the oldest. Anyways, I don't know if she was letting me know she's still with us, but it made me smile as I'd like to think she was letting me know she's okay and is still watching over us. Also, my grandma left me her Elvis collection, and that included some of those musical ornaments. I keep them stored in their original boxes when not on the tree. Some were gifts from her late neighbor Wilma, She put a note in the box that shows the year and that it was from Wilma for a birthday gift. Were the kids imagining the movement and the song playing or was my grandma saying hi? That is for you to decide. I love that you guys all end your emails that way. Well, Jessica, I'm willing to believe it was your grandmother if you do. Sure, why not? Of course, it just could be an old ornament that just decided to play on its own, but I'd rather believe that your grandma gave it a little push on the back. Incidentally, I also have Elvis Presley ornaments for my tree, but they don't play songs. I've been gypped. And then I got an email from Jerry and I had to chuckle at the beginning of it. He said, greetings, Diane or whomever fields the email account. And I had to chuckle about that. It's all me. I do everything around here pretty much. Occasionally, Kelly helps me with some stuff, but uh, I read all of your emails and I reply to all of your emails. If I tweet at you, it's me tweeting. If there's something up on the Instagram, I'm putting it there. If I send a comment or anything out, it's me. My question is about resources for skeptics. Diane mentioned something to the effect of believing accounts of skeptics, and I admit that it resonates with me as well. I also find that the majority of tales from skeptics tend to be more mundane, but more compelling. Many years ago, my stepfather took on the role of sexton for our church. We belonged to a mainline church built in the style of many churches of the 50s. The sanctuary had hardwood pews and featured side aisles and a predominant center aisle, which put our church in high demand for weddings over newer facilities. I would often assist my stepfather by taking on certain responsibilities that could only be done in the middle of the night. This meant working alone, which was fine by me. One night I was walking from the side door in the front of the sanctuary to the back of the room heading to another part of the church was the middle of the night and the light switches were in the choir loft, so as usual, I didn't bother with them. As I began to walk down the center aisle, I could hear whispering on my left-hand side near the aisle about six to seven pews back. When I stopped to listen, the whispering stopped. I shouted at the voices and ran and checked the location. I figured we had a break-in. I went to turn on the lights and searched the entire building. Didn't get out of there until 5 a.m. I heard it many times over the years, always in the same place, always in the middle of the night. One afternoon I was having lunch at my parents place and my stepfather was expressing concerns over the safety of the neighborhood and how he wished I wouldn't work at the church alone. I dismissively joked that I was never alone and the ghost would back me up if there was something I couldn't handle. My stepfather stopped eating and replied, so you've heard it too. We then took turns adding details that proved to each of us that we had the same experience. He also shared with me the names of many other elders trustees that had also reported similar encounters. Years later, as we remodeled, I even went and checked the subfloor and walls to make sure there were no signs of rodents or other animals that could have produced the sounds. It remains a mystery that spanned over 40 years of church leadership. I don't know what caused the whispering sounds, but I do believe in the others who had heard it. I've known them to be trustworthy over my lifetime. In fact, I trust them more than my own senses. I realized the above story is far from being a spooky tale that would be retold around campfires. Heck, I was even a little bored typing it. Well, I told Jerry, I said, I don't think it's boring. Anytime somebody has a personal paranormal experience to me, it's interesting and it doesn't matter how mundane it may seem to be. And I said, what do you mean boring and mundane? You're in a church, it's dark and you hear whispering and you hear it multiple times over the years in the same area. That's not mundane. That's creepy. Anytime I hear about a church being haunted, it kind of, I don't know, wigs me out a little bit because I'm like, aren't those places not supposed to be haunted of all things? So thanks for sharing that, Jerry. And uh, as I said, when people who are very skeptical share things with me as we just had two emails that were that way, I tend to believe those a little bit more because people are not necessarily given over to believing that kind of stuff. Also in the Spooktacular crew, I put a file up there with the 2019 calendar of events, things that I know are going to be going on in this next year so far. January 25th of 2019, that's a Friday evening, I will be in Southern California. So we will be doing a tour of the Queen Mary. June 21st to the 22nd of 2019 is the Haunted America Conference, which is held in Alton, Illinois. Tickets go on sale January 7th at ghostconference.net and I encourage you to buy them as early as you can because it's at that time that you will pick the after hours events that you can participate in and those usually sell out very quickly and we're planning on doing ghost hunts this year. Friday night I'm going to sign up for the Mineral Springs Hotel Ghost Hunt that's from 10 p.m to 2 a.m and Saturday night I'm signing up for the McPike Mansion Ghost Hunt so we're doing two of them this year and I'd love to have you guys join me for that. If nothing else join me for the conference it's always a great time. And I love meeting you guys in person, so it's a great opportunity for us to meet up. In September, this is all kind of tentative right now, but I believe from the 6th to the 9th, I'm going to be doing a Western Iowa road trip. The tentative plan is to have a ghost hunt with an Iowa paranormal team at the historic Klondike Hotel in Manila. My brother-in-law is good friends with them, so we're going to get hooked up so we can do something like that. I want to do a paranormal investigation at the Squirrel Cage Jail in Council Bluffs, which we just had on a recent episode. If you would like, you can come and visit the Hanson Farm, which is where my sister lives in Westside, Iowa. And the one thing that we definitely have nailed down for this trip is I have reserved the Velisca Axe Murder House for September 7th. It's a Saturday night. There are only eight spots available. It's $75 per person. Let me know if you're interested in that. It'll be first come, first serve. So if you are interested in that, let me know as soon as possible. October 5th, I will be part of a live show in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, the home of the Mothman with Hillbilly Horror Stories and the Brohio podcast. Tickets for that show are $15 a piece and you can find them over at Eventbrite. I will be putting the link up in the show notes for this episode and I will also put them up in the spectacular Crew over on the History Goes Bump page. I will tweet it out and all kinds of good stuff. So if you search me on social media, you should be able to find the link so that you can buy your tickets. And I know it's not until October, but you want to make sure you get them because they are limited. We'll probably throw in a visit to the Mothman Museum and the Haunted Historic Low Hotel, which we have featured on an episode here, is also there. And I'm planning on staying there overnight. So we'll be checking that out as well. And then October 19th, Hillbilly Horror Stories and myself will be hosting a live show in St. Augustine, Florida. If you've ever wanted to come to St. Augustine, make this October the time that you come and make a weekend of it. We'll be doing the live show on Saturday night. Friday night, I'm hoping to set up a Dark of the Moon tour at the St. Augustine Lighthouse. And I think I can do it private. So I'll have to find out how many people we can have with us for that. But with that tour, you also get to do a little bit of ghost hunting. So that's a great way to get to see the lighthouse. And every time I've been there for the Dark of the Moon tour, I've had something happen. We're also thinking about trying to do a ghost tour after the live show. We're just not sure how the timing is going to work out. So that's a little tentative. During the day on Saturday, there are so many things that you can do in St. Augustine. There are tram tours. The Ripley Auditorium is there. The Castillo de San Marco. The Pirate Museum. There's just tons and tons of things to do in St. Augustine. So I encourage you to come. If you want to hang out in a haunted city, this is the place to do it. So that's what we have on the calendar for 2019 so far. Do you have a couple of Apple podcast reviews to share with everybody? This first one is from Emmy Ray, spookily intriguing, five stars. Heard about this show numerous times on Hillbilly Horror Stories as well as Twisted Philly, and I soon started binge listening. Growing up, I always loved history and anything pertaining to ghosts. The show is a perfect combination of the two. I'm from good old Allentown, Pennsylvania, and I hope to hear Diane cover some stories from around my way. Weaversville Inn, King George Inn, Moravian College, etc., etc. Thank you for all you do, Diane. I love sharing what I learn with my family and friends. Keep up the great work. It's truly appreciated, Megan. Well, thank you, Megan. And I will definitely add some locations in Allentown to the list. And next up, we have Security Stiff. Love you guys. Please, another Bible ghost show. Five stars. Hey, Diane, love the show. Longtime listener. Your show's gotten me through so many work shifts and gym sessions. Look, I got a chance to listen to your old bonus cast from 2015 regarding ghosts in the Bible. As a Catholic, I can tell you that you guys take on this hitherto taboo subject matter. It's so candid and refreshing. I wish you would do another, please. Thanks for all the wonderful shows and memories. Take care. Well, if I can think of an angle to come at it from, I would love to uh, do a Ghost in the Bible part two. Let me see if there's some other subject matter I can get into. And if you haven't already listened, you might enjoy the Pennhurst episode that I just did recently with Tony Merkel of the Confessionals podcast. We talked a little bit about some of the weird stuff that's in the Bible and some fringe Christianity type topics. Thanks for those reviews. Greatly appreciate them. I want to thank you all for tuning in to this episode. I have been your host, Diane. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers.
0: Dispatches from the Grave
1: Digger. We'd like to welcome into the cemetery John Michaels and Colleen Golden. You both are going to be getting chest tombs. And Adam Vander Yacht, you're going to be getting a grand mausoleum. And you know what? We'll put it right next to Beth. You'll have a hers and his mausoleum. And let me just say thank you to the Vander Yachts. The only other people giving as much as they are to the show are my own parents. So it means a lot to me, you guys. Thank you so much for your generosity. I also want to thank Melissa Potter and Brian Jones for upping your contributions. Brian, we're going to be moving you into a garden crypt. And Melissa, you already have a garden crypt, but we're going to upgrade it. So this one's going to be nicer than the one you were in. All right, Mort, you have a lot of work to get done. But before you do that, buddy, we need some eulogies.
0: Eulogies by Mort. Jennifer Taylor had been an EP for two years. She is here now with her spooky peers. We are feeling a great loss. I'll drape her tomb with Spanish moss. This next eulogy is for Brett Swinson. His life has ended its run. He had lived in the city of Chicago. I'm hoping his remains help the flowers grow. Promobly Burns had lived in the city of Burbank. Now she'll be in a place dark and dank. She enjoyed a jot in a cemetery or two, and liked those creatures that said boo. Jean Lavoie was a woman who was kind. I hope she likes this to my design. She was apparently a Tom Hardy fan. But I think I'm a much better looking man. Jennifer Delian was a big fan of ghost shows. I hear those shows are full of paranormal prose. She lived in a city outside of Houston. I'll bury her before the rising of the sun. Debbie Seeger was from Wisconsin. Having her here makes me grin. I hear she liked to belly dance. Is that different than the little prance? Melissa Nelson lived in the Pacific Northwest. A great place to go on a monster quest. She had liked riding on motorbikes. Now she'll be a ghost to hitchhike. Check out the website at historygoesbump.com.